So rapid has been the advance of 20th century science in the diagnosis and cure of disease that one pictures men of medicine as seizing avidly on any discovery which contributes even slightly to their understanding the human body. And in general, such a picture is accurate. But what shall be said of Dr. Kilner's remarkable experiment? An experiment which might have revolutionized the whole field of medicine had not doctors and laboratory experts chosen to ignore it. The record of Dr. W.J. Kilner's astonishing discovery may be found in a book entitled The Human Atmosphere. There he recounts how on a summer's day 12 years before he happened, by the merest chance, to stumble on a strange and inexplicable fact. He and his assistant were working on a routine experiment in the laboratory of St. Thomas Hospital in London. All right, Alex. I'm ready for the viewing screen now. It's got some sort of a dye on it, hasn't it, Doctor? Yes, I stained it myself this morning with dicyanine. Hold the screen up, Alex. Let's see if it's dying. Wait a moment. What in the devil's name is that? What? Behind the screen. It's my arm. But what's around your arm? Around it. Why, nothing. Nothing you can see, perhaps. Alex, I want you to disrobe. I want to see your whole body behind that screen. The laboratory assistant, completely baffled by Dr. Kilner's sudden intense excitement, removed his clothes and stepped behind the viewing screen. A sort of an aura, all different colors, extending beyond the surface of your skin. The human body, at least your body, throws off a strange kind of substance. In the first feverish flush of discovery... Dr. Kilner had no doubt that he had correctly interpreted the amazing thing he'd seen. But an hour later, he began to wonder. And so he summoned one of his patients from a ward in the hospital and asked him to stand behind the screen. I'm not crazy, am I, Alex? You see it too, don't you? Sort of a... well, sort of an atmosphere all around his body. Exactly. The human atmosphere. But why is it so different up there around his chest? The radiations... They're a different color and a different texture altogether. By George, so they are. I'm sure they weren't like that when you... Good Lord. This man's a tubercular. And the aura's modified only in the region around his lungs. That screen's given us a new way to diagnose disease. of the doctor's discovery spread rapidly through the hospital. <laughs> the human atmosphere. You saw the radiation? How do I know? They aren't the properties of the screen itself. Alex, you ready with, uh, with the other patient? Yes, doctor. Uh, well, then, uh, uh, help him to sit up behind the screen. If the radiations were just an optical illusion, if they were created by the screen itself, they'd always be present. Wouldn't they, doctor? Well, then, take a look at the man who's there now. Do you see any aura? No, I don't. How do you explain that, Kilner? It's simple enough. You see, the body Alex is holding up in that chair happens to be a corpse. Dr. Kilmer made hundreds of difficult and invariably accurate diagnoses with the aid of his viewing screens. And yet... The record of Dr. Kilner's work lies ignored, forgotten by contemporary science. This fact, like the fact of the remarkable experiment itself, can only be regarded as incredible but true.
Greetings, radio listeners. You just heard incredible but true. I don't know about that. I, it, 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 I'm, I'm all right with the true part of it, but the incredible, uh, I'm, I'm it's not just, really. It's a stretch of the imagination, yeah. and it's a and very the, short and, one. And, he, and, and the announcer does not seem to be adequately filled with hyperbole. Well, it is a short one, and is this something that allows us to warm up here? Uh, just get ready so we're not bumbling, and we're bumbling away anyway. Well, anyway, that was incredible but true. Human atmosphere. And now it's time for the Oob Radio Salon. And in the way of two hours of experimental frequencies... And we are here in the Chakra Chimp Research Kitchens. It is Doss, it is Pixie, and we have some a menagerie of instruments set up this evening. What's you got on your side? There's some acoustic What's instruments. On your side there of? is a uh, what is that? A dulcimer. Yeah. And a no, toy it's piano. That's not. not a yeah. dulcimer. No, dulcimers are not that weird. You shape. hit it with a little hammer. Well, then it's a. Uh, See? It, it works like that, but. It's kind of out of tune, but Lovely. again, I thought that was what it was called. I could mm. be wrong. Yeah. And some, tines. some metal tines, which is a theme lately that we've been working with and you may hear more of next weekend. And that great big pink thing. And a big grand toy piano. And some thumb pianos and wind-up toys. And Doss has an oscillator cigar box. What do you call that thing? It's got two oscillators and a filter. Dual oscillators. And and a thing that when you don't have them locked together, then they play off of each other. Almost like an LFO, but we'll leave that. And then there's a Kaiser Instruments toy piano, but they he took out all the times and replaced it with springs. Modified toy piano. That is stupid modified. It's very industrial sounding now. It yeah. doesn't sound like itself anymore. It sounds it like a have big booming version of well, itself. It's got springs. Yep. So and then you put a contact mic in it, so it's got a big knob on the front. So turn up the volume on your toy piano. What a weird thing that is. I know. So I know. It and it's got a jack, so you just jack and <laughs> plug it into stupid things. There you go. All right. This is our 819th week. No, 820. We hit 820. That is what today is. Here, the 1st of October, we have turned a page into official autumn. And we're still grooving after the full moon into this new month as we close out the year pretty soon. So, yes, we are broadcasting live on DFM. Radio Television International. DFM RTV INT out in Amsterdam, all the way across the world, so people like us here in Northern California land can broadcast to you, wherever you be. All right, if you want to be on the chat, dfm.nu has Discord links, web chat, 
IRC, Second Life. Take your pick. There's probably more. I don't even keep track anymore. As many as I can, but if you want to sign up for our archives, our podcast, we have all of that stuff. You can find us on Linktree, UBUIBI, or UBUIBI.org. That's a lot. You were saying about <laughs> fucking monkeys, like like <laughs> developing because they can't help but develop things and figure things out. There's more streamlined ways, but you know we're not a corporation here. We're just a discorporate bunch of individuals. <laughs> but we do have fun. It's fun. It's good to do. We do this every week, uh, whatever this is. Today it's going to be what this will be, and we may be playing some collage that we're making with some vocal cut-ins by maybe well-known people. You'll see. But anyway, wherever you are, hope you enjoy this session as we get on with our scheduled broadcast. such facility 
we almost all of us can do it. It's a very severe impairment on your humanness if you are language deficient in any very serious way. Uh, blindness is as nothing to being seriously language deficient, so forth and so on. So it's really the defining thing for us. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's almost like a half miracle. I mean, you can study it. There's no problem with getting vast samples of tape recordings. We can analyze it syntactically. There have been many theories of syntax, philosophies of syntax. And yet, what is it? How can we uh, make meaning with such facility? when the rest of nature seems totally unconcerned with this. And what is meaning, anyway? Why is it so important to us? We say if there is no meaning, if life has no meaning, it's not worth living. Well, how do ants and bees and, and scallops stack up on that opinion? Do they also feel that meaning is the quintessential aspect of reality? And yet we make it, we make it out of ourselves. And then we get together with somebody else and we try to make meaning. We say, you know, you and I could have an affair or you and I could start a business. This will have a lot of meaning for us. And, uh, you know, we'll make money and buy more meaning. Uh, well, I, whatever it is, and C.D. Broad wrote a book called The Meaning of Meaning, which deals with it in about 400 pages. But whatever it is, it's very important to us, and it seems to have different modalities. For instance, dance can have meaning, painting can have meaning, uh, spoken or, or textual words have meaning. But because of biases in ourselves as an organism, what seems to have the most meaning is what we can see. Our, our visual, we have a tremendously rich sense of visual input. Well, for some reason, under the influence of these psychedelic drugs and certain exercises, and who knows what else it takes to shake you out of your cage, but suddenly, syntactical organization, which has been invisible in the background of the program of meaning, becomes visible. And you actually see the engines of syntax. You actually behold uh, the machinery of meaning itself. And for some reason, this is very satisfying. It's like an ecstasy. It's like an affirmation of some sort that is transcendental. There is a recognition in it that transcends uh, the felt apperception of ordinary meaning. You know, in other words, that you're gazing somehow on the naked face of truth and beauty. Well, it seems to me that what all this suggests, what all this, by all this, I mean the human capacity for the psychedelic experience, the human facility for switching these linguistic channels from the beheld to the seen, what all this must mean is that history is nothing more than the transition phase from felt intuition, the mute intuition of the animal body, 
to fully expressible three-dimensional meaning, and that the descent into matter that technology represents is because you can't do this entirely on the natch. There has to be a certain augmentation of the human organism in order to do this. It may be pharmacological, it may be neurological, it may be nanotechnological, and then some part of the other two. Whatever it is, is I think we are coming up under the underbelly of meaning, boring from beneath, and that uh, you know we're just about to hit the jackpot. And this is what the historical process is, and the proliferation of media, of, of the discovery of perspective 500 years ago, oil painting, uh, airbrushing, uh, digital sound, all of these techniques are this summoning of the image. So we are actually moving toward a kind of self-fulfilling process. It's something that we are defining for ourselves as it approaches, and it is defining itself for itself as it approaches. You actually experience this on psychedelics sometimes. I mean, the way it works for me on mushrooms or sometimes DMT is there is a black space, and then I hear the uh, what I call the elf music or the Irish band, and it's far away. And as it comes closer, I like see light. And as it comes closer, it both gets louder and the light fills the stage of awareness until finally the sound is subsumed under the visual impression of the thing. And then it's all around you. And it is, uh, you know, this domain of self-transforming language. I mean, I call them language elves. But what they may be is nothing more than self-reflexive compound complex senses. It's hard to tell what they are because we're not used to having our senses stand up and embrace us. But nevertheless, the nature of reality is fractal and it can't have been lost upon any of you that in a fractal universe, uh, text is composed of characters characters of a given alphabet, but reality is also composed of characters, the characters like you and me, who live out some kind of plot. Well, when you get characters into a text, in other words, characters made of characters, then you begin to feel the, um, the textual richness and the linguistic richness that seems to be not in the forefront of reality, but actually to lie behind it. I mean, the final conclusion, not the final conclusion, that would be preposterous, but the most, the most recent conclusion that I'm coming to looking at the psychedelic experience is how, how phenomenally text-like reality is. I mean, it's more text-like than one should decently say. Uh, we are much, this is much more like a work of art than anything recognizable from my physics class. I mean, my physics class was about atoms and electrons and momentum and conservation of energy. My literature class, on the other hand, was all about personality, motivation, history, uh, 
precursive active uh, anticipation of action, willful suspension of disbelief. These are the things that I see actually going on around me. And so it's strange as we decondition from the being sold from the top worldview of Time Magazine and Scientific American and the Wall Street Journal, what we discover is ourselves active as art in a work of art. This is what the reclamation of experience seems to give back to us, is ourselves as very complex objects. You see, in the institutionalized world, we are defined always um, in ways that stress our similarity. We hear about voters, and I'm a voter. And we hear about women, and many of you are women. And we hear about yuppies, and we hear about the middle class, and we hear about uh, uh, you know, those with liquid liquidity in their portfolios, but every, everything is presented as a member of a class. We are always presented to ourselves as members of some class, and yet we experience ourselves as unique objects, but there is no reinforcement for that experience of uniqueness. I mean, you have a lover and they say, you know, I think you're wonderful and very special. That's about all the reinforcement for you get, and your mother also tells you this, but then you take a psychedelic plant and you discover, you know, hey, you know, I could, I'm Christopher Columbus, I'm Magellan, I'm, I could be anybody, uh, I'm not defined in these narrow ways, there are doorways in my reality to areas of experience as large as half-baked plan 
articulate that we can't quite bring out. It's a quality of the time. And, uh, I'm going to talk this afternoon more about the quality of the time. But we can't think any more clearly than we're thinking at the moment when we're thinking at our best. Uh, part of what history is is a clarification of the human situation. And I think you have to press the envelope And the second and most important thing is 
any model you can't understand is useless. So, you know, most of us can't understand most of the models. I mean, who here would care to walk to the blackboard and begin to describe the first stage of quantum electrodynamics to us? And yet we all know that our world is supposedly hung on this very well thought out theory that experts are in charge of. But notice, no pun intended, but notice that if experts are in charge of it, you're not. It's absolutely useless to you. You know nothing about it. Well, so when you start peeling away and saying, what do I know? You know, it turns out it gets into thin soup rather quickly. This is no cause for despair. This doesn't mean you should go back to night school to study <laughs> quantum physics. That's the wrong conclusion. It means that all of this stuff that you thought were the whole high walls of reality are just smoke blown by somebody else. These constraints are not binding upon you at all. Somebody said to me once their father had been a professional scientist, and uh, he said once, I never would have seen it if I hadn't known it was there. <laughs> and we all are in the habit of seeing all kinds of things because we know that they're there. And in many cases, they're not there. And you just walk through and you discover all kinds of things. I mean, I am convinced that anybody who has a nature psychedelic trip, at some point in that trip, their eye falls on things no human eye has ever seen before or ever will see again. You know, it's that big in there. It's not at all clear that we're mapping a generalizable reality. Uh, it may be that it's just so huge in there that never do we pass through the same uh, matrix twice. Well, that means you can give up on closure. You can give up on any on any theory that will ever give you uh, very much of a more than provisional handle on what's going on. And I think this is probably a good, a good step to take, to open ourselves to the freedom that lies beyond culture. Culture is a kind of prison, and the only way that we know to get beyond it is to dissolve its boundaries. Now, you can do that with psychedelics, and then you really explore the baseline of being, or you can dissolve it with travel, but then you dissolve your own cultural programming only to discover you fitted yourself into somebody else's cultural programming. And this, well, uh, you know, definitely education is like a psychedelic drug, not that fond of. I do a lot of traveling, but... Uh, it's not the same thing as replacing space and time with some kind of alternative. That comes from, um, you know, doing the hard work on five grams of silent darkness. And really what you see, I think, is uh, the morphogenetic field, the invisible world that holds everything together the knit of it all, not the knit of matter and light, but
but the knit of casuistry, of intentionality, of caring, of hope, of dream, of thought. And, and that all uh, is there, but it's been hidden from us for centuries because of the exorcism of the spirit that took place in order to allow science to do business. And that, you know, momentous and ill-considered choice then has made us the inheritors of a tradition of, of existential entities, really. But that has impelled us to go back to the jungles and to recover this thing. It's all of a piece, you see. I mean, these people in the Amazon and whatnot were keeping this cultural flame burning. But these cultures are now all dead. They are either dead or in a state of advanced, uh, suspended animation. I mean, the best anyone hopes for when they go to a rainforest culture is that it be somehow resisting the change all around it. There's no rainforest culture that is elaborating new forms and thriving on its own terms. So all the things that were learned, the legacy of the ancestors, is now laying basically at the feet of this high-tech electronic society. And the question is, you know, can we dream a dream sufficiently noble that we give meaning to the sacrifices that have been made to allow the 20th century to exist? I mean, God, the amount of blood shed and, you know, infectious diseases spread around, metals ripped out of the earth, mountains moved, railroads laid across continents, all of this stuff as, uh, as the means to reclaiming the human birthright that science hides from us. It's a very strange enterprise. I mean, it's hard to put it across because the thing is, it's real. But actually, there are secrets. At least these are secrets. And hard to tell. I mean, I, I tell them, and you hear them. And we seem to have been allowed a cosmic dispensation. But why that is, is very hard for me to understand. I would have thought that this would have been headline news 20,000 years ago, right up until the present. Instead, you know, it's very tentative. Apparently, this is very threatening to us. Uh, we are not as eager to sail over the edge collectively as we think we are. So then it becomes the function of the shaman, the gadfly, the, the go-between to carry information back and forth between these worlds. I'm convinced that if there were no shamanic uh, pipeline, there would be no human life as we know it on this planet. I mean, there could be climaxed animal life, 
there was no need for this higher order linguistic style of self-reflection to come into being. It's that something is plotted, something is working itself out in us. We are the cells of a much larger body, and like the cells of our own body, it's very hard for us to glimpse the whole pattern, the whole purpose of what is happening, and yet we can sense that there is a purpose, and there is a path. Well, uh, the way you connect the pattern with the lower level is by dissolving the boundaries of the, of the ego and the self into this larger thing. And then it's found to be there, reflective on many levels. It's not, it doesn't require a mechanism. Everything is obvious. If things don't appear simple to us, I think it's because we haven't thought about it long. Well, so that's sort of a survey of some of this stuff. Thank you very much.
Jerry at Fair Oaks. Jerry, did you happen to know that you're not the only one that's going to try for that open position on the polo team? Yeah? Who else is, Lee? Mm, I heard there were several fellas that would like to make it. Cully Newsom told me that he was going to try for it. What's he like? Cully Newsom? Yeah. Oh, he's all right, I guess. He doesn't seem to be very popular with the rest of the cadets, though. He's a second-year man, but mm, I don't know. The fellas just haven't taken him in and made friends with him. Why not? What's the matter with him? Well, it's like this. Cully's rich, see? Very rich. His father is Mark Newsom III, and his mother was Madeline Cully. <laughs> Both of those families are just about the wealthiest in the country. Yeah, but I don't see why that makes any difference. I'd like to be friends with anybody like that. Well, you're right. That's the way I feel, too. After all, it's not his fault that his people are wealthy. But it is his fault that he doesn't forget it while he's at school. You mean he thinks he's better than any of the other fellows, huh? Well, I don't know if he feels that way or not, but he certainly does talk an awful lot about his folks and what they've got. Now, I see what you mean. Yeah, but maybe he can't help it. Well, he's going to be stiff competition for you on the riding test. Yeah? Why? Well, in the first place, he's had a pony when he was only a couple of years old. Then as he grew up, he's always had his own horse to ride. He's had the very best of riding instructors, too. Uh-oh, I guess that lets me out. All I know about riding, I learned myself, except a few pointers Whitey gave me. Who's Whitey? Oh, he was in charge of the horses with the circus. Ooh. He showed me everything I know about jumping hurdles. Well, I don't see how you could ever get a better instructor than that. He was in charge of the horses with a big circus. He must know plenty about them. Have you ever seen, uh, what's his name, a uh, uh, Cully ride? No, I haven't. He's never done any riding here. This is going to be his first time to try out for us. Well, one thing I did find out from him, though, he's never played polo, so you're both starting even that way. Oh, well, all I can do is try. <laughs> That's his spirit, Jerry. See, I, I wanted to ask you something, Lee. Yes? I thought you told me I was going to have Mrs. Gardner for a mathematics teacher. When you went into her classroom the first thing yesterday and today, I, I had to go to study hall. You filled out tests the first day, didn't you? Yeah. Well, you did that so they can grade you and find out first just how far you are along in your arithmetic. Oh, I see. Well, I was wondering. I've been kind of anxious to meet Mrs. Gardner. Yeah, you'll most likely be in her class if your examinations were okay. Well, I sure hope I am. From what Captain Gardner and you and Tubby told me about her, she must be awfully nice. Oh, she sure is, Jerry. She's a real friend to all the boys. Well, there's the polo field. That's a stable right ahead. Hey, they sure keep the field nice. 
That grass looks like it's never been played on. Oh, they keep after it all the time. Hey, there's Linwell. He must have been down to the lake. Oh, Harold. He's waving. He sees us. Hey, come here. You know, I feel sorry for him, Jerry. He's the youngest and smallest boy here. He doesn't go in for any games or anything. I don't know. He always seems so lonesome. He's a nice kid, though. Oh, he sure is. I told you about his dad, didn't I? Uh, Tubby said something about him the other day when we met him in the gym. Uh, he's an airplane pilot, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a test pilot. One of the best in the country, too. Haven't you ever heard of Guy Linwell? His name's been in the papers lots of times. He's won a lot of first prizes at air races. Yeah, it, it is kind of familiar at that. Hi, Harold. Where were you going? Back to my room. Oh, you been down to the lake? Uh-huh. Hello, Jerry. Hiya, Harold. Hey, you want to come along with us? Where are you going? Over to the stable? Yeah. Jerry's going to try out for the open position on the second-string polo team. Well, yeah, I'd like to go. That's the position Red Morrison lost. And that's a tough one, too. It's a Goldman. Do you think you can handle that, Jerry? Well, I don't know. I never even played polo, but just like I told Lee, uh, I can try. I wish I was a little bigger so I could ride. Oh, you'll get there yet, Harold. You're liable to grow up bigger than any of us. Have you heard from your dad lately? No, I haven't. I don't even know where he is. What? You don't know where he is? How's that? Well, the last letter I got from him was three days ago. And he said in that letter that he was going to test some new speed ship for Hayden Aircraft. He said that it was going to be a secret test, and he didn't know just where he'd have to try it out. Oh, there's nothing to worry about. Sometimes those tests last a long time. I read once where they tested a ship for weeks. Yeah, I know that. Well, he's worked for Hayden before, hasn't he? Sure. It was a Hayden ship he flew in the air races last year when he won first prize. Maybe you'll get a letter from him tomorrow. Oh, hey, look. There's Sergeant Alden out back. See him, Jerry? Oh, yeah. Did I tell you that he used to be in the Army? No, was he? Mm-hmm. He was a sergeant in the cavalry. And he sure knows all there is to know about horses and riding. He must be if he was in the cavalry. Oh, gee, I'll say. Look who's in the back of Hedness Ray. I can't quite make out... Who is it, Harold? Looks like Paul Warren, doesn't it? Yeah, I believe you're right. Yeah, that is Warren. Say, if he's going to take the riding test, there's some more competition for you, Jerry. Why? Who's he? Well, Paul comes from out west. His dad has a big ranch. He was brought up with cowboys, and he's been riding since he was just a youngster, too. Is he an upperclassman? No, no, he's a plebe. He's up on the second floor in Hayward Hall. He's a little older than we are, though, and goes to different classes. That's why you haven't met him yet. No. Well, now that we're here, what do I do? Just wait till the sergeant comes out. Here he comes now. I'll introduce you to him, Jerry, and then you tell him that you saw on the bulletin board that there was a place open on the second string team. Okay. You, uh, you cadets want to see me? Uh, yes, sir. This is Cadet Jerry Dugan, Sergeant Alden. Oh, I'm glad to know you, Dugan. I'm glad to know you, sir. I've come to see about that open place on the second string uh, polo team. Oh, yeah. You're, you're a new man, aren't you? Yes, sir. I've only been at Fair Oaks about three days. Mm-hmm. Well, did you ever do any riding? Oh, yes, sir. Well, how much? Tell me about it. Well, I was with Randall Brothers Greater Circus. Mm, you rode with the circus, eh? Yes, sir. I did a race act, and then I used to ride a little colt that I broke in. I had him doing some pretty high jumps just before I left the circus. Mm, well, that should be pretty fair recommendation. But uh, did you ever play polo? No, sir, I haven't. Well, now, you go and sit on that bench over there. I'm expecting a couple more of the boys. And I'll call you when I'm ready for you. Yes, sir. He's going to give you a test, I guess. Sure he is. He thought that was pretty good, Jerry's being with the circus. I sure hope you make it, Jerry. And I guess Red Morrison will be singing a different tune if you do. Gee, wouldn't that be great? Give the test everything you got, Jerry. And we'll be pulling for you just as hard as we can. Thanks. Hey, look, there goes that other fellow talking to Sergeant Alden. Paul Warren? Yep, he's going to try for it, too. I wonder how many are going to try out. Cully Newsom said he was. Who else? I don't know. I haven't been talking to anybody about it. Hey, here comes someone else. 
No, over there. That's him. That's Cully. Where? I don't see him. Look, over there. He's coming this way. Oh, yeah, I see him now. Hey, Newsom. You haven't met him yet, have you, Jerry? No, I haven't. Well, you will, right? Now. Greetings. Oh, come here, Cully. I want you to meet my new roommate. This looks like quite a turnout for the test. Are you going to try out Phillips? No, no, not me, but my friend is. This is Jerry Dugan, Cully. Charm, Dugan. Uh, very happy to make your acquaintance. Huh? Uh, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to know you. Are you a horseman, Dugan? Uh, yeah, I can ride a little. I do wish I had my own horse to ride. There's no telling what kind of nag they might give a person. Oh, I wouldn't say that, Cully. Every horse at Fair Oaks is the very best they could get. The best is none too good, Phillips, when it comes to polo ponies. But we'll make the best of it. However, if I do succeed, I shall have Father send me a special saddle. Cadet Newsom. Yes, sir. Coming. I'll be back presently. I see what you mean, Lee. Special saddle. <laughs> yeah, did you get that? Well, I still think I'm right about him, though. What do you mean? Well, I don't think he acts like that on purpose. He just can't help it. He was brought up like that. Mm, that may be. He's always had servants that have bowed to him and made him feel superior. But underneath uh, all his fancy talk, I'll bet he's a good guy. Sergeant Al Alden is talking to those fellows out into the field. I wonder why he didn't call you, Jerry. Hey, do you think he forgot me? Oh, no. No, he'll call you when he's ready for you. Look it. There's a couple of the ponies saddled. Oh, maybe he's going to try them out first. Cadet Dugan. The sergeant's calling you now, Jerry. Well, can't we go along and watch? I don't think the sergeant would mind. Come on, let's hurry, Jerry. Coming, sir. Hey, look at Paul Warren is mounting one of the ponies now. Mm-hmm. He's going to try out first. He did you see him get up on that pony? He did that like he's been doing it all his life. Yeah, look that way, all right. Here, Jerry, through here. Hey, you cadets stay on that side of the boards if you want to watch. Yes, sir. Well, I'm, I'm going to let Cadet Warren and Cadet Newsom try out first, Dugan. But all three of you are going to try out, and you'll be judged equally. Yes, sir. All right, Warren, whenever you're ready. First walk around, then let me see a trot, and then a gallop, and then back into a walk again. Go ahead. Hmm, that's not so hard. You can do that, can't you, Jerry? Sure, that much is easy. I'm afraid that's not all there is to the test, though, Jerry. Let's wait and see what's next. There's his trot. Hmm, that pony sure takes commands nice. Well, of course he does, but the word is, uh, nicely. Oh, oh yeah, uh, takes commands nicely. <laughs> Can you imagine Cully calling a swell pony like that a nag? Look at him go now. Boy, he sure is a good rider. Hmm, too good. What's that, Jerry? Uh, oh, nothing. Now let me see some fast turns and quick stops. And some fast getaways. Hey, did you hear that? Oh, this is going to be good. Say he is good. I didn't have any idea Warren could handle a horse that well. Ha, just look at him go. Wow, look at that sharp turn. Yeah, and that's only the start of the test. <laughs> You're not getting frightened, are you, Jerry? Huh? Oh, oh no. <laughs> Jiminy, he sure can ride. Well, that's enough for now, Warren. Cadet Newsom, mount that other pony now. Yes, sir. Hey, that can't be all there is to it. No, but that gives the sergeant an idea of how well he can handle a horse. A very good idea, I'd say. Oh, there goes Kelly now. Mix it up the same as Warren did, Newsom. Yes, sir. Now we'll see what the great Newsom can do. Mm, he looks right at home up there in the saddle. He sure does. Sure, that getaway was beautiful. Look at that. I guess he wasn't bragging when he said he could ride. Mm, he's almost as good as the Russovs. The Russovs? Who are they, Jerry? That's the Russian Cossack riding troop with the circus. Oh. Maybe he's just showing off. Uh-uh. There's no such thing when it comes to riding. You either can or you can't. Just look at him. Well, this is certainly a surprise. I think he's even better than Paul Warren. He's just as good. You know, 
I think I'll pass up the test this time, Lee. What? Well, both those fellows have been riding longer than I have. You can see that. Jerry. Oh, well. Now, how do you know what you can do until you try? Those are real polo ponies, Jerry. You'll be surprised once you get up in the saddle. I know, I know, but, well, both Warren and Newsom have been here at Fair Oaks longer than I have, and by rights, they should get the open position on the team. Jerry, you're getting cold feet. Not only that, you're letting me down. I didn't think you were a quitter, Jerry. I'm not, but, well, after seeing him ride, I, I don't think I'd pass a test anyhow. Okay, Newsom, that's all for now. Cadet Dugan, take that first pony now. Oh, me. Go on, Jerry. Go on. Show them, Jerry. Well, I don't think I can do what Cully just did. You're coming, Dugan. Go on. Yes, sir. Attaboy, Jerry. Good luck. Do the best you can, Jerry, and you'll be all right. Ride like you never rode before. Okay, I will. Watch me. Oh, we will. And we'll be rooting for you, too. at the circus, like military school, huh? That's 1939, so thinking of the timing, like, hmm. Anyway, um, let's proceeding. How many demerits did you get this week? reach 1,000 shows. If Doss is already at this point, <laughs> yeah, that's very loud. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm not sure I was crashy. ready for you, but here you it's are. It's all right. Uh, the name of the... Crashy, 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 oh crashy, goodness. crashy, crashy. Maybe it's time we stop doing this show <laughs> entirely. <laughs> or maybe we're not doing enough. Maybe we have to do it every day for a while. So we rush to show 1,000, like, really fast. Well, anyway, welcome back. This is still broadcast number 820 of the Oob Radio Salon. 
for you, the letter U. And we are still broadcasting on DFM. And it's another experimental sounds session with Pixie and Dawes. A lot of crashing things going this way and that. And it's fun. And thanks for listening. We're not done yet. We have one more set. I'm very excited that in a couple weeks we're going to have a remote interplay of instrumentation live musicians joining us known as the Drood. And we are going to play as Big City Orchestra with the Drood. Two long, trippy-ass experimental sessions live with them. And yeah. that's going to be fun in two weeks on I, October I 15th. So. Um, 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 yeah, they did one of the Mysteries of Oops on the TV programs, one of the hours, a whole hour, big long hours piece sent in. Um, this Friday, we start the first Friday with uh, Austin Rich and many mutations on the TV program. So look for that. We'll have some kind of announcement or go to the oops, oob hole. Well, in linear motion, this this weekend, next weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. <clears throat> it's, yes, why don't you yeah, just slam the whole <laughs> thing out there? <laughs> well, we do have October 6th, 7th, 8th. Linked up with DFM, once again, the Northern California Noise Fest. And this is the 27th year of the Noise Fest. And it'll be the 25th year for us, actually, as Big City Orchestra. We're going to close it out, as we always do, on the third evening with something mysterious and weird and live. But you can watch all three live days. <clears throat> at the NorCal Noise Fest YouTube Live channel. And DFM will be re relaying all of the audio for those driving around who shouldn't be watching YouTube in their cars or if you're just kicking it back and you've got other stuff going. Or you're an astronaut. Or you just want to get on the chat and you have it going and like talk to people. It, or it's you're just... in a submarine. <laughs> or you're in the biosphere or the International Space Station. I, I guess they could probably listen up there. Uh, well, anyway, wherever you're listening, if you want you to just check go it out. Radio Garden, right? Yes, you can. DFM is on Radio Garden and other networks, I'm sure. Well, anyway, what I'm trying to tell you is if you forget all of this and you want some calendar updates, go to ubuibi.org. There's a calendar known as events, and we've got it all there. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice again. Well, anyway, we also, it's the opening of Virtual Burning Man, and DFM will be doing stuff there, and we'll be doing stuff there, but also Friday night in the Pacific time zone. We have mini mutations at 11 p.m. on Mysteries of Oob, which we're going to be live streaming on our U UBU, <laughs> not YouTube. <laughs> anyway, so if you're done with Noise Fest, right after it ends, you can just jump on over to our video stream and you can chill. We're going to have a chill, drone, immersive two well, hours. Are fill somehow something in between then? No, there's nothing in between that. So it's, it'll be a void. 
the, the maybe a void. Yeah, <sighs> probably not the maybe not the one you're thinking, but uh, some kind of. Anyway, there's always things to do and people and places to be, but uh, if you just like listening to audio, DFM's the place, man. It's always there, 24/7. Weird shit and strange broadcasts and fun ones. Check out the broadcast schedule. But we've got one more set here on Ub Radio. Enjoy. So we didn't. Oh, just just before yes. I bring your mic down. Um, so. That was interesting because even though we sort of were in the room noodling and setting up our own <laughs> stuff, by the time we got finished, what your range was was quite different than my range. And you were all like, I don't know, kind of folky and melodic. And I just had like this dirty, <laughs> dirty, horrible thing. But, well, you know, but, so, with the so things we've set up. So what are we doing? Do you up, know? Do you, I do Are know. you doing some sort of the same thing you did before? I haven't really changed the instrumentation. It's the same oh. things I told everybody. We've got, you oh. know, string instruments. Oh. We've got some tines, grandfather clock tines. I've got a violin bow, um, some small thumb pianos, and what else? Uh, that dulcimer thing. And I have one synth I'm kind of using for drone. And then oh, you, you you've got that one? weird, messed up toy piano thing. Yeah, it's with still a there. Hydrophone on it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and that doesn't go through any effects because it's a balance line. No. Well, you know, it, it's so. just we we don't really know what we're we doing. We don't it's know what we're doing. Improv. Okay. Well, I'll leave it at that. It's not a prepared. Your lines are up. Let me okay. bring down the. Music. Okay. Okay. See you on the other side. You and your submarine. Thank you. 
between the state of consciousness of a baby and that of a so-called mature adult. Respectively, what we would call undifferentiated and differentiated. The adult consciousness being highly selective and the baby consciousness being very open and hardly selective at all, and therefore unable to distinguish what adults consider to be the important things which have to do with the conventions and rules that the positive aspects, whether they be called good or pleasant, life-giving, and so on, must prevail over the negative aspects. And I went on to show that this contrast between the two views of the world has another marked characteristic. But in the case of the baby who hasn't been trained or told, about the difference between himself and all that is defined as other than himself, doesn't distinguish between voluntary behavior and involuntary occurrence. And, of course, we think this is a very fundamental effect. But if we go back, you see, to the principle that underlies the whole universe with a kind of mathematical exactitude, we see that if we reduce things to the situation of primal simplicity, and we have a primordial self and other situation, that is to say, two balls in space, there is absolutely no way of telling when they move which one of them is moving, or which one is still. They must necessarily appear to move mutually. There's no point of reference, except each other, to determine which is moving and which is still. Now, everything that goes on in the universe is simply a complication of that principle. Because the same thing holds true if you multiply the number of balls. You'll see that that primordial principle that all movement is mutual, still applies. And therefore, the baby's failure to distinguish between the voluntary and the involuntary, the I and the other, is in a way correct. Psychologists, psychoanalysts in particular, make a great deal of this contrast and consider that the baby's view is inferior to the adult. And if an adult should acquire that view in psychoanalysis, this would be called regression. The point that is missed is that the two ways of looking at things need each other to balance out. And that one needs the baby's view as a basis for the adult because if you don't have it, you take the adult view too seriously. Get completely carried away by it. 
and that would be analogous to a person who, in playing poker, loses his nerve because he doesn't realize it's only a game. So he becomes a very bad player. In exactly the same way, we in life are only playing a game. But because we didn't keep the baby view, we can't see it. So what we would call a Buddha view is one that knows both. And therefore is not taken in by the adult games, although perfectly capable of playing them, but insofar as they are not regarded as finally and absolutely serious, he's not captivated by them. Now therefore, one asks the question, that sounds very interesting, but how do I recapture the baby point of view? And I showed that that was the wrong question, because it arises entirely and exclusively out of the adult point of view. Because the adult point of view involves the fiction that I exist as an agent independently of everything else that's going on. So ask, how can I do this? And the important thing is to realize that the feeling of there being this isolated I is part of the game and it has no fundamental reality except as a convention. And so long as that isn't clear, we're confused. I reiterated the point that when we ask to whom must it become clear or to whom is it not clear, that this too was all part of the illusion of the world that the adult presents to the child. So the only way in which the child's vision and come again is in the realization that the I can't do anything about it at all and can't even do nothing about it. All possibilities of vision for what we call I myself are out. And this, and of course, is the same meaning that the Christian or the Islamic mystics would say, that the mystical experience is the gift of God, and there's nothing you can do to get it. That's a clumsy way, really, of saying the same thing. Because so long as you are trying, or not trying, you are aggravating the sensation of the separate ego. That in itself, you see, as I talk about it, presents a certain difficulty. Or one thinks it's difficult. 
there would be a second difficulty if we were to go on and say, it isn't only the illusion of the ego, but the whole valuation system that we put on the complexity of vibrations we call awareness of life, all the various valuations that are put on this by the social game are maya, that is to say they are illusory, basically. Because it's only in play, as it were, that we say this is good and this is bad, this is advantageous, this is disadvantageous. And so we would go on to say after this, but I cannot imagine anything more difficult than overcoming that hypnosis. I am so enchanted by this system that the idea of treating it as not really very serious seems to me
So it is also in our language if I say I love you. You don't know when I've said I, what I is doing. I could say I hate you. So we don't know until later. So in other words, the word love or the word hate changes the function of the word I. And then I was going to say, I love flowers. Oh, but I love you. See, and so the word later changes the meaning of those that go before. The present is always changing the past. So, when you get the idea in your mind that the point of view I'm talking about is very difficult indeed to acquire, that idea is one you are putting there to stop yourself seeing the other point of view. And above all, you must not take that seriously. It is simply a method of postponing seeing the point now. So you have to see it now or never, because there is only now. If you say, well, tomorrow, the next day, maybe in another dozen lifetimes, I'll be ready. That means, simply and solely, I don't want to be bothered with it now. I'm even not interested in it now, so I've got an excuse for putting it off. Which is fine, that's perfectly okay. <laughs> you can put it off. There is no reason, there is no compulsion why you should come out of this that's why Oriental people do not tend in the same way as Westerners to be missionaries. That's saying it's very urgent that you be saved. It isn't, unless you say so. I mean, unless you are so disturbed by the suffering and the problem of suffering that you've got to find some sort of escape. But if you don't want to, you can stay there. It's okay, there's lots of time. And maybe you'll see through it when you die. At least in the moment of death. You'll see that it was all a fake. So, don't be scared about the idea of the difficulty of it. That's a red herring and it's quite irrelevant and I don't think that teachers should talk quite so much about this as they do, saying, oh, this is going to take a long, long time and a lot of practice and many years. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but that's beside the point, because it distracts. It's like telling somebody that this is a very difficult book to read and it requires immense powers of concentration. Well, that immediately kills your interest. Instead of if I would say, well, now this is a book, most extraordinary book. This is so fascinating. I've been working on it for years. And every time I, do, I just get so involved, I can't drop this. I mean, that's a far more encouraging attitude to a student than, uh, well, it's going to be very difficult. 
except to very, very self-hating students who uh, somehow perversely enjoy suffering through it. I suppose that's an awesome way too. does it <laughs> I mean we could keep going but very nice to have these two hours to do this little experiment every week here on DFM thank you very much for listening and if you'd like to get the archives you can go to ubuibi.org and keep it tuned to DFM where you'll find more wonderful, interesting shows worldwide. Check out the broadcast page and keep your eyes peeled for the DFM news link. I'm sure there'll be updates as we get closer to next weekend's multiple festival openings and cross-current networkings. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your evenings, mornings, if you're listening later on, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And you can always check out our events guide for all the things I mentioned earlier. 
can't keep up, I know, so many. UBUIBI.org. And make a donation to DFM if you can keep the DIY spirit flowing here. Programmer listener supported. There's a donate button at this site, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.